<laughs> well, every issue that was brought up right now in these last three minutes, I will touch on today. Every single one of them. Single parenting, uh, mental and physical health issues, uh, siblings, college students, everything that was mentioned. Divorce issues. Divorce, the whole thing, yeah, it's, it's all there. So, um, let's pray. God Almighty, I thank you for these people who've chosen to come in this hour and this time. That whatever I say today, they will connect it directly to why they're here. We lean into you, we rest in you to show us what we need to see for the sake of the children that you've put in our um, sphere of influence. We rest in your care this day. I ask your blessing over my words and over my thoughts. They will represent what you would have me say today. Through Jesus, amen. amen. When Mallory was nine, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. The next two years, her life and her family's life centered on medical care and her recovery. Mallory had multiple surgeries, some of which were life and death situations. She was in the hospital 15 times. Though the family has insurance, the medical costs have been exorbitant, and her mother has not worked since the diagnosis, as Mallory has needed continual care. Mallory's been in and out of school. Her head was shaved for two of the surgeries, and the medications have caused her to gain weight. These medical situations have yielded some name-calling and some bullying from schoolmates. Mallory has asked her mom why God would allow this. Allie and her twin brother Aaron are 12. Their dad moved out of the house about a year ago. He now lives in a condo on the other side of town. Their parents' divorce was final six months ago. Their mom is sad and still cries in her room almost every evening. Their dad says that things just didn't work out. But he also says he will be sure that they have what they need. Allie and Aaron visit their dad one weekend a month. Allie wonders if life will ever be the same again. Aaron is trying to step up and be the man of the house, taking on some of his dad's chores like taking the dumpster to the curb on Thursdays. They still go to the same church they always have, but mostly no one mentions the divorce or their dad. Their mom recently moved to full-time work from her previous part-time position. Allie and Aaron are beginning to realize that things will never be the same again. Well, children around the world have survived population-wide traumas like Katrina. I think of Aleppo, all the children that were there when that city fell, the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. So children are there when these international or national or regional uh, traumas happen. They've lived in war zones, they've become refugees, surviving short and long-term refugee camps. Other children have survived long-term personal family traumas such as living with physical or sexual abuse, with parental addictions or mental illness, or in a chronically violent neighborhood. Those are those larger traumas that we think about, and tomorrow we'll be addressing some of those. Today, um, all of you will have some experience with children who have lost a sibling or a parent to death, um, children whose parents have gone through a divorce, or children who struggled with a chronic illness. These circumstances can, can also be traumatic for children. 
Now, they may not be the same as a tsunami that wipes out your entire region, but they can yet be quite traumatic. Right now, if you have something to jot down or if you just want to keep it in your mind, I want you to write down any children that you know of who have, um, who are, whose parents have divorced or are divorcing, uh, they're facing a chronic illness or a terminal illness, or they've lost a parent or a sibling or a close friend to death. Just jot down some names if you'd like to. We're, I'm going to ask you two or three questions about those children. We tend to think of trauma, and, and this is work that I've done mostly with traumatic situa situations like population-wide um, disasters. But interestingly, we're finding that more ordinary circumstances also um, tap into some of these same issues. Uh, as you know, some children come through such difficult circumstances, overcoming even severe adversity, remarkably well, while other children remain fragile into adulthood. So this is the question that we're asking. Why do some children come through such difficult circumstances, overcoming even severe adversity remarkably well, while other children remain fragile into adulthood? And it could be that some of us have remained somewhat fragile into adulthood as we cope with some of those hard things from our childhood. So why the difference? And can we affect any change? Can we affect any change? I'm going to ask you at the back, I don't tend to talk loud enough. If you are having trouble hearing me, you keep raising your hand and it will remind me to talk louder. That's, I, I just go like this. So if you just stick your hand up, then I'll know to talk louder. Okay. All right, so that's the question. Uh, even if we could find out some of these factors, could we make a difference? Could we actually make a difference? Um, there has been research now for about 20 years or a little longer on resilience. And uh, it's been coming together now for some years. And this woman, Anne Maston, has written a very recent book in 2016 called Ordinary Magic, Resilience in Development. And she has taken all the research that's been done for a while, and she's come up with what she calls 10 protective factors. These can help children when they face adversity. But what I'm saying is, once a child has faced adversity, how can we step in then? I mean, it's, this is great ahead of time. We want to help them. Uh, I mean, afterwards we want to help them after they've faced it, but we want to help them before. That's what I'm going to say. That you've got kids in your church that are just tootling along, life's good, and then something happens. Can we do something to help prepare our kiddos? It's going to happen. You know it's going to happen. Now, it may not be when they're 8 or 10 or 12. It could be when they're 17 or 23. But are there ways that we can... Uh, help provide some of these protective factors. I'm going to give you these 10, and you're going to see where spirituality fits in here. Here's her list, and you can jot these down if you wish. Uh, capable parenting. In other words, if a child goes through some kind of trauma, if they have good parents around who can help them, that's fabulous. Now, in a population-wide uh, disaster, sometimes your parents are killed. That's pretty hard. Um, but capable, good parenting can help if you go through a local disaster or a local problem and your parents are around. You know the problem here, though, is if you are terminally ill, your parents are going through their own trauma, their own deep trauma. If you have a population-wide <laughs> disaster, your parents are also coping the best they can. So they need other people. But this is one piece of protective factor. Other close relationships, if parents are gone or missing or also traumatized. Other close relationships, this can either be family or your church. I mean, your church can make a huge difference. If a child has other people who can come along beside them. Uh, intelligence, that's, this does not mean, and I wish you hadn't called it this, that if you, the more intelligent you are, the more resilient you are. What it means is you have to have a working brain and problem-solving brain. You do better. 
if you have a working brain. If you've literally been a disaster and you had brain injury, it's very hard for you to be resilient. Or if you're so emotionally traumatized that your brain's not functioning very well, it's very hard for you to be resilient. That's what she means, a working brain. Uh, Self-control, some people are just more naturally controlled in their emotions and in their outlook and their ways of being. They don't immediately say, we're all going to die. They, they look at the situation and say, what can we do about this? So some children and adults are, just have more self-control. Uh, some children say, what is the problem? How can I fix it? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through this. I'm going to make it. So this motivation to succeed, that's just an inner quality some children have, some don't. Can we promote that? Probably. How can we do that? Self-confidence, self-efficacy, same idea a little bit. Uh, I'm going to make a difference here. I'm not going to let this get me down. I'm going to go find the help I need. Self-efficacy is promoting uh, your own agenda and your own needs. I need help. I'm going to get it. Some children, some adults have more of that. How can we promote that? <coughs> Effective schools. Now, if you have a tornado who come, that comes through and uh, wipes out your house and all your community and your schools and your churches, I mean, it's a lot harder to be resilient in that situation when your relationships, your family, your schools, your churches, your communities all kind of wiped out. If it just wiped out your farm, uh, but your family lived, you still have other supportive organizations around to help you be resilient. So if you have effective schools, effective communities, effective cultural practices. There are some cultures that say that, oh well, our, our village was wiped out, there's nothing we can do. Uh, that's not typically an American outlook, but some cultures just say you just receive what happens and you go on the best you can. So a, an effective cultural practice that supports uh, resilience. And then the last one, faith, hope, and belief that life has meaning. This is the way Maston says it. Other um, researchers will say, you know, religion, or they'll say spirituality. But hope is a common theme, uh, some version of faith, or, and this meaning-making is very important in much of the research on resilience. But that's where we're going to park. You see how all these others play a role. Many of them we can't affect in our settings. We can't make people capable parents. But we can certainly come around parents if they're also traumatized. Some of these we can't fit. All right, now, uh, Shelly Malia has come alongside uh, what Masson is doing, and she's telescoped them into five things. So in groups of one or two, I want you to say to yourself, to each other, which of these are external factors? So just chat with your neighbor. Which of these ten would you call external factors? Just chat it through. As versus internal. As Okay, pretty easy. It helps us telescope these into external, internals, but then she also says family dynamics. So that could be the first two. That could be. And then she's got relationships. Well, that's the second one, and actually the first one, connectedness. That's an important piece. And then she names the last one. She calls it faith slash spirituality. Well, as you can see, we're, we're going to be looking at those two. And all the researchers are saying after a child has faced a trauma, um, their internal faith and their, their belief relationships, their sense of hope, those kind of things, all those matter. But before a child faces something, how can we begin to build this in our children? So both of those things. And some of you are dealing with the before 
your regular Sunday school classes, those kind of things, what can we do? But then you've got kids all over your churches and in your lives and in your schools and wherever you are who are dealing with various forms of trauma and difficult situations. So that's what we're going to do today and tomorrow. Hmm. So this, is, this has been the cutting edge of uh, research in children's spirituality now for a while. I've been looking at children's spirituality issues for, I think, maybe 20, about 20 years. Uh, this has come to the fore in the last 10. And so as I began teaching courses on nurturing children spiritually, that was back at John Brown University from 2000, maybe five to 2014, probably about eight or 10 years, uh, a course on this, I had my students just go out and find any kid they wanted. It could be a sibling, a cousin, or a kid at the church or whoever. And they would spend 10 hours with this child and do the various things that we're going to talk about today to nurture them spiritually. When I moved to Lipscomb um, in 2014, um, I was going to take that course with me. It wasn't required for any major, and so finding students to take it would, was going to be kind of hard. I decided to make it a SALT class. It's a service and learning class. We had to partner with a community uh, partner that needs volunteers that would be working with children. That's hard to do because you have to get all the permissions and all those kinds of things. We did that. Took a year to get it in place. And at first, the first year we did this, uh, we worked with children um, at, whose parents are in prison. So this is Tennessee Prison Outreach Ministry. It's a ministry that works with uh, Tennessee women's prison, so they're women, and then their children, their children. So we had access through one of the board members to five children. I had five people in the class, and she found five girls uh, to work with. Uh, these girls, it was their mothers who were in prison, because this is Tennessee Prison uh, for Women. So all five of these girls had a mom who was in prison. That was the first year. The second year we worked in an after-school program in a lower socioeconomic level in town. And then a year ago, not this past fall, but a year ago, uh, two falls ago, we worked with Nations Ministry Center for Refugees. There were 30 or 40 or more children there. We had 11 in the class, and so the director of that program found 11 children who have Christian backgrounds. There were Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, various children there. But because some of what we did was going to be somewhat explicitly Christian, she found 11 children whose parents would allow us to work with them in their after-school program. These are three of the children. I will name children today. It is not their real name. It's their pseudonym. But we did have permission from parents to work with them and to talk about them as long as we used pseudonyms. And sometimes I forget what their pseudonym is. But I try to remember what their pseudonym is. Uh, and then this past fall, was a unique situation which I will share with you later. Those were all unique situations, but this was different. So we need some definitional work here. Resilience. What do we mean by resilience? Uh, this is Mastin. She's uh, one of the authors of this chapter from a book in 2006. Um, positive patterns of adaptation or development manifested by individuals who have experienced risky or adverse conditions. So we've got two parts. Positive patterns of adaptation or development in light of what they've experienced, these risky or adverse situations. That fits every situation that was brought up today before we started class. So some kind of adverse condition and the child is positively coming through that. So what does this look like? So what does this mean? So if a child who has suffered adversity is later said to be managing well enough the developmental tasks that are typical for his or her age in that context, they're said to be resilient. So, developmental tasks for children would be doing well in school, getting along with other children, following generally the behavioral rules of society. So, 
they're just getting along, they're managing, they're doing okay. Conversely, problematic development could be reflected in poor performance in school, may not be, but it could be, aggressive behaviors toward other children, social withdrawal patterns, mental disorders such as depression, and violent or other antisocial behavior in general. We've all seen this. We've all seen this in all kinds of settings. Here are, I've gone through all the literature looking at specific articles on children whose parents are incarcerated, children who are refugees, children in a lower socioeconomic level, children who've been dealing with poverty all their life, children who've survived a violent, uh, like a, a school shooting, all that literature and, and that intersects with children's spirituality and they say, what are some of the common behaviors that we see in children that have uh, come from hard places? This is Karen Purvis's term, coming from hard places. I think it's a good general term that captures. Here are some of the things. I want you to think of the child or children's names you wrote down earlier. Depressive, these are some of the things. Now, all children won't display all of these. Aggression, delinquency, social exclusion, and our children whose parents were in prison felt this, left out. Academic difficulty, some, do this, some others go the other way. They, they take that as an area they can control and they just go for it. Uh, lower cognitive functioning because they're coping with so much else. Sometimes they have abandonment issues in divorce situations or the death of a parent or parents in prison or they've been killed. Uh, attachment issues, same kind of thing. Shame or embarrassment, and we did see this, of course, in our children uh, whose parents are in prison. Isolation. Now this is when the child chooses to isolate. The social exclusion was when they're left out. <coughs> Isolation is when the child pulls in and uh, just isolates. Self-comforting behaviors. We saw this in some of the refugee children. We had a little girl that had lotion out, and she would put lotion on six or eight times while we were there, mm -hmm. just constantly putting lotion on. That was her self-comforting behavior. Overcompliance. Instead of going the aggressive route, sometimes children try to just be do everything exactly right. So overcompliance. And anger issues were very common, especially among the refugee children that we uh, so I think we had a better chance to see that because there were so many of them together. Uh, we, we did have a room that we worked with our children, and we also spent time in a larger uh, group, and we saw quite a bit of anger. Okay, my question. Consider the children you know who perhaps are chronically or terminally ill, who've lost a sibling or a parent to death, or whose parents are going through a divorce. How do these characteristics fit? And you can just consider it on your own, or you can talk to a neighbor. I'll give you a minute or so. Are you seeing some of these in a child or children that you wrote down? Symptoms, not not ADHD, like constantly social, constantly pushing mm -hmm. themselves to that. Like I, yeah. one particular is that. I saw that. Like, I didn't see uh, it in all the literature. Okay. I saw this pretty much across any population. Okay. Uh, another one is if this is from sexual abuse, sometimes they are over friendly. They attach to any that can be under attachment mm -hmm. issues, but it showed up occasionally as over friendliness. Okay, thank you. I will keep, keep reminding me. It's not my natural way to yell. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I will try to project. 
Okay, so did you see some of these? All right, so my point is, we don't have to have a whole different set of things for this population of children and another set of spiritual activities for this population and another for this population. That if we nurture them spiritually, it begins to uh, connect in all kinds of ways. And for kids who aren't facing any problems at all that we know of, uh, many of the things that we talk about today bless anyone. But they particularly bless those who are facing adversity or have overcome it or have endured it. Common feelings of children who experience loss or trauma. They sometimes feel overlooked in a divorce situation. As you well know, sometimes the children get left out of the equation. Makes no sense, but actually the parents are just barely coping. And, and they, the kids, if they look okay, they seem okay. We, we've got to move on through this. Uh, sometimes they're confused uh, in whatever trauma situation they're getting. A lot of younger children especially feel guilty. Why did God let this happen to me? Maybe I, oh, I remember that time I took that. That candy I wasn't supposed to, and they feel like they brought it on, whatever it was. Little children especially, but up to, you know, 8 and 10 sometimes. Teenagers can also do this. Theirs makes a little more sense if, it, uh, if they may be somewhat guilty. They didn't cause a tsunami. But some kinds of issues, they feel like they could have brought it on. Uh, but little children tend to think they caused it. Fearful, certainly you can be fearful. When something traumatic has happened, it could happen again. Vulnerable sometimes shame, self-blame, I should have been better, anger, grief, of course, sadness, anxiety, and they feel depressed. Not all of these symptoms, all of the time, but it's many children feel many of <coughs> these things, and often in lots of situations, there's simply no one around to hear their story, hear how they feel. The adults around them are barely coping. And if you think of something outside what's up here, I'm sure it's true as well. Um, and what you said, I, I have seen that in the literature, absolutely, for certain populations. So common needs. So this is where we come in. Okay, now what can we do? What are the needs that they have? Children who face loss or trauma. Hope is the word that shows up in every piece of literature. The kids that come through hung on to hope. And by the way, you know, one of the big findings after World War II is those who survived the camps. If they held on to hope, they had a much better chance. Those who gave up ended up making it. Now there was some crossover, of course, but um, <coughs> hope is such a biblical, Christian, and godly idea. And that is something that we have that we can share with children. Hope is huge. They need hope. Uh, security. You've been through trauma, you need to know that there are people around you who can make you safe, help you be safe. They need, all children need structure, but kids whose lives have become chaotic need structure, they need boundaries, uh, the sense that anything could happen at any time, they, they need to know that there are some safety things in place. They need compassion, they need respect, places of safety, and they may also need assistance in making meaning of their experiences and dealing with forgiveness issues. That's just across the board. We all probably still have a few forgiveness issues hanging around in our heads mm -hmm. as well. If we can be more explicit about it and help children deal with some of the feelings that they have toward God or toward others, some children aren't, they don't even know what they're, they don't, know, they don't have named what they're dealing with. 
Um, but sometimes we can help them get there and help them begin to deal with some of those forgiveness issues. Sometimes they blame themselves. It's hard to forgive yourself uh, if nobody's even talking about that. You just feel that guilt and hide away. We have plenty we can do. There's just lots we, we can do here. So how do we begin to tap into that inherent spirituality in children to help them use that resilient. So how might spirituality be a resilient factor for these children? First of all, this is my definition of children's spirituality. I've hammered out over about 20 years. Children's spirituality can be defined as a quality present in every child from birth. So that's the key piece. We're already spiritual beings. Uh, we're psychological beings, physical beings, emotional beings, and we are spiritual beings. Out of which children seek to establish relationship with self, others, world, and God. We've tended to think of spirituality as only uh, the God-child relationship, but it is beyond that. Think of the first and greatest commandment and the second. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Those are the world's not but we can find other support for that. Those relate, we were made for relationship. All of you know that. You're theologically attuned enough to know that we are made for relationship. That is going to help children as they uh, recover and um, push through and survive serious trauma and loss in their life. Helping them relate to themselves, figure out what's going on, helping them relate to others and to God. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to do several things that will help children relate better to themselves, to others, and to God. Uh, nurturing children means assisting them in their relationship with themselves, others, the world, and God. That is it. So, children and divorce. What I say about children and divorce is actually not terribly unique to this particular form. I do have some stats and things to go along with this, but I hope you know that everything we talk about is usable in any loss situation. But I, I do at least talk a little bit specifically <coughs> about divorce. By the way, religion. Religion and spirituality, are they the same? I would say they're uh, intersecting circles. Mm -hmm. um, religion is more um, formal forms of beliefs and attitudes and behaviors connected with a belief in God. And spirituality is more relational. Now, religion and spirituality overlap. Religious people can be very spiritual. Um, they don't have to be. Uh, spiritual people can be very religious or not at all. They may not attach their spirituality to any form of religion at all. Most of the literature that I've read is talking about children's spirituality. It's a little more acceptable terminology. Some of it conflates what they find about going to church, prayer, with spirituality. So sometimes I'll say religious, sometimes I'll say spiritual, uh, but I've leaned this more toward that spiritual aspect. Uh, there is good literature on even just going to church, what that help, how that helps children. It does. That's that structure and form and boundaries and teaching, those kinds of things can be very helpful if that stays steady when other things go away. So I don't want to put down the church pieces of this. That's just not what we're focusing on today. And much of the literature says good, good things about that. Um, divorce. So, since 1974, about a million children per year have seen their parents divorce. Now, uh, divorce skyrocketed in, skyrocketed in the 70s. It has 
leveled off in the last 20 years. I guess you know, now it skyrocketed and it stayed here and it went down a little bit and it's, it's been about here, but it didn't get back down to here. Uh, it's still very common. Uh, there's a lot of uh, divorce. So about a million children per year have seen their parents divorce. This is interesting. How could this happen? Why is this happening? That why question shows up over and over. And that's that meaning-making piece. That's that meaning-making. We're not going to be able to answer all that, but we can help explore it with children instead of pretending it's not there. That's what's wrong is when no one addresses that. Judith Wallerstein, Elizabeth Marquardt, and Mavis Hetherington have conducted extensive studies of the effects of divorce on children and the young adults they become. Uh, though about yes, thank you. Though about 20 to 25 percent of children of divorce experience serious social and emotional problems, these authors maintain that the other 75 to 80 percent are deeply affected as well. If you are an adult child of divorce, it still affects your life. It doesn't mean you go crash and burn every five minutes, but it still affects you. Most children of divorce, even those who go on to lead outwardly successful lives, typically experience confusion, isolation, and suffering. They commonly are deeply absorbed in their parents' needs and vulnerabilities. They tend to confront complex moral questions earlier than their peers, partly because they live in two different settings and parents may have different ways of seeing things. They have to be one way over here and another way over here. That's confusing for children, but they learn to navigate it, whether healthily or not. Um, They're often alone and lonely. They may keep secrets for their parents. Don't tell dad I'm seeing him. Don't tell mom that this woman is sleeping at my house. So they keep secrets sometimes for their parents. They may become protective of their parents. They may feel emotionally and physically less safe than peers from intact families. They feel less protected, less cared for, less comforted. And I have citations through this. They feel frightened about the present and about the future. They feel overlooked and guilty and fearful. That's a depressing paragraph, I know. But did you see feel, 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 feel? What can we do about that? We cannot get their parents back together. We cannot tell them, it's going to be all right. But what can we do to help them deal with their feelings? Those psychologists might identify some of those feelings as interpersonal and psychological in nature, they, and they are. They are also spiritual. When we consider our definition of children's spirituality, that is their relationship with self, others, the world, and God, those connections are very evident. Marquardt, especially, uh, Elizabeth Marquardt wrote this book, this is Between Two Worlds. This is Elizabeth Marquardt. She wrote this in 2006. It is as relevant now as it was then. She did research on college graduates whose parents divorced. So their lives looked fairly, I mean, they had made it through college. That's, that says a lot right there. So these were the fairly successful ones. And she's the one who said, even when you make it through without crashing and burning, it is still very, very difficult. She was a uh, child of divorce. Her parents divorced when she was two. Her mother remarried. Her father remarried. She went back and forth for some years. The, her mother divorced and then again remarried again, and so she chronicles some of that, because she was two at the first one, but then she was you know, eight when they divorced, and she was 12 when they remarried. So she's got several stories along that line to tell. But she focuses on the moral and spiritual lives of children, so she frames all this in spiritual terms. I really appreciate the book. 
And since she went through uh, a div several divorces, her dad divorced again, uh, she uses we in her book, and this is what she says. Growing up, we deal early and alone with profound losses and confront big questions of meaning. We search for explanations in a culture that too often denies our loss, dismisses our questions as cute or precocious or ignoring us altogether. We are child-sized old souls. When we come of age and leave home, we are less likely overall to be religious. We long for spirituality as much as our peers. But loss, suffering, lack of trust in, and anger at our parents, and even anger at God, are more defining qualities of our spiritual journey. We are not going to be able to fix divorce. But we, those of us who are in contact with children, what can we do? Louder. Thank you. Um, so how do we support children of divorce on their spiritual journey? These were sad quotes. A three-year-old described divorce when mom and dad hate each other and their family is dead. A five-year-old, it's when someone signs a paper, someone leaves home, and the kids cry. <clears throat> what can we do? Fewer than 10% of the participants in Wallerstein's studies reported that any adult spoke to them sympathetically as the divorce unfolded. We simply don't know what to say. How are you doing? Oh, good. And they learned to say fine. Okay. And of course, most of us, if you don't know them well, you don't just say, listen, I need to really know how you're doing. They're not going to respond to that either. But the children in your life, the ones you know, we've got to go do better than just saying, hope you're doing well. Let me know if you need anything. One of the more common observations in the literature addressing children and divorce is that children have no place to safely share their fears, concerns, burdens, angers, and frustrations, all those feelings that we talked about, especially since some of those feelings are attached to a parent. You can't say, I'm really mad at you, Dad. Well, you can say that, but children don't feel safe enough to say that. Probably the most important thing that those in helping professions can do when spending time with children whose parents are divorcing or have divorced in the last few months or years is to listen to their stories. Allow them to be angry without reacting negatively. And acknowledge their experiences as their reality without simply assuring them that everything is going to be okay. We want to just tell them it's going to be fine. They don't feel that at the moment. Uh, we had some deep, deep trauma in our lives years ago, and I remember there was a time when I just said, I don't think I believe anything. And a dear friend said to me, I will believe for you. That was so comforting to me. We can say that to children. I know it's hard to believe right now, but I will believe for you. Can you just help them through that five minutes or hour or days? I will hold you during this time. Powerful sentence we can say to children.
Marquardt reports that the affiliation with religious institutions strongly affected by parent is strongly affected by children's parents' divorce. When the household divides into two separate entities, you may go to two separate churches. If the church had been churchgoers, one or both parents may go to another church or simply quit attending. Rarely do both parents continue in the same church. Makes sense. So, guess what? If children are going to different parents, they're having to adjust to a new church or two new churches who may or may not know their story, who don't know that they're coming with one parent, uh, and so they're awkwardly there in the middle. One obvious disruption is religious, but also there are holidays and, of course, weekends and summers, all this custody situation. Before her mother married Marquardt's second stepfather, she and Marquardt had attended church regularly. Marquardt's new stepfather was non-religious and her mother quit attending. So Marquardt describes walking to the church alone sometimes. Felt disconnected, adrift, she quit going when she was 12. Marquardt poignantly describes later, her later foray into the Pentecostal church at 15. She attended with a boyfriend initially and then he went off to college and then she attended on her own. She sat alone on the back pews and was rarely approached by anyone in the church. It was a lonely, disappointing, and ultimately unfulfilling experience for her. She knows that at the very least, those who are regular churchgoers should be aware of children and teens who come alone and sit alone in their churches. These children are seeking something. They wouldn't make that effort to come if they didn't want something of God or from the people there. We need to be the antenna. Now you think, oh, they'll just want to look for the youth group. You'd be surprised how comforting it can be for a stable older person to come alongside them. They may not want to be, they would have come to the youth group if they wanted to be in the youth group. They're there worshiping God. We can step into that. Now if they don't want you, they'll make it clear, you can slip out the back. But at least try, at least notice. That was so poignant when I read that in her book. I thought, oh, I've been guilty of that. Those of you who work in youth ministry know you've got lots of, usually in a youth group of 50, you've got five or seven kids coming with no parental support. They need all the support we can give, whether there's been divorce or not. And they struggle with questions about God, their belief in God. They may approach God from a place of suffering and isolation. And some of the things that we do today can begin that connection. I do want to say this one caveat. No matter what we do today, most children who've gone through deep trauma and loss need one-on-one -on -one counseling. Nothing we do today replaces that. I'm not saying you just go do spiritual things, your kids are fine. I'm saying in addition to, if that's at all possible, most children will need some one-on-one -on -one counseling or some support groups, those kinds of things. I'm not tapping into that today, but I want you to know that I'm very aware of that, and I'm not saying this will substitute for that. So we'll do four different spiritual practices today, and I'll have lots of stories to go along with them. The first I'm going to do is a godly place story. So oh, I should end with this. When parents divorce, we need to listen to their stories. We need to allow their anger without reacting negatively. And I said these things, I believe. Acknowledge their experiences as their reality without simply assuring them everything will be okay. And we need to welcome them into our church settings. I said those things. Some of you are visual learners. You are. <laughs> <laughs> these are mostly from Mark Hart, but Judith, Wall Judith Wallerstein, if you're interested in anything on divorce, she wrote for 25, 30 years. She did longitudinal studies of the same families from, I don't know, 75 to 2000. 
I do actually have a question. Yes. So let's say there's a divorce and you know the parents and the child is ex expressing their feelings. What is your, if you have a relationship with the parents and you have a relationship with the child, what do you do when the child is telling you all these things? Is there a point where you tell the parents, hey, maybe they need this? Or how does that work? Well, You'd you need to navigate that, yeah. Mostly you don't talk to the parents about what the child said. But if okay. the child is suicidal, yes. Okay. You know, if there's danger there or if there's abuse, you have to report that. Mm -hmm. But mostly you're in a, you're, if you're not a preacher or, you know, and a counselor, you're just there for the child, you're listening. I wouldn't go telling the parents. Now, if you think that child needs counseling, if you're in a relationship with the parents and they say, oh, I don't know what to do, things are just going terrible, you say, well, you know, you might want to consider finding, I know someone at church who could be, is a good counselor. You can do that. But okay. keep that child's relationship sacred with you unless there's danger. That's what I would do. Yeah. What do you do as a grandparent? I would do the same thing. Boy, I would do the same thing. Keep that separate. They need you to be their advocate. That child, they don't want you to run into their mama or their daddy. They're talking to you because they can't talk with mama or daddy. That needs to be a safe, safe place. If there's abuse, if you suspect suicide, that, that kind of thing, you've got to do something. But they need you to be safe and on their side. I need you to hear them. Grandparents can play a wonderful role in that. That's, thank you. Very good. So, stories that speak to children. I'm going to help you provide ways for children to step into those feelings that they, that they have. I'm going to uh, share a godly play story. Uh, uh, I can't see this very well. We're just going to ask you to stand, come to the front rows, sit. The back rows, come stand and watch what I do up here. Best you can. Work it out, come around here. Some of you can sit, some of you can stand behind. You can gather over here. You can gather back Stay. here. You can gather all in fact, You can gather all on this. Of course, we can just sit around here. Any of you who want to sit, you can sit right here. Any of you who can't sit on the floor, uh, find a seat. Okay, let's move quickly. Yeah, come right around here. All the way around. Sit as best you can. This is called A Godly Place Story. Now, this came from um, overseas. This is Montessori's work. She was Catholic. When the Montessori schools came to the United States, they left the faith and spirituality behind, just brought the math and all those kinds of things. So our, our Montessori schools have been very secular. Uh, but Jerome Berriman went back and looked at all her materials and helped transform them uh, and brought them into the Protestant world, changed some of them. Uh, to the more spiritual aspect, left the Montessori schools here to do whatever they do, and he created God. <coughs> I'm going to do a Godly Play story, a very quick version. So we have a box here. I wonder what's inside. Kind of an old box. I think it has a parable in it. And parables are old. They're pretty precious, too. It's a gold box. Parables are precious. Sometimes they're hard to get into, but if you keep visiting them, they open for you. So we have several things in our box. I wonder what this could be. And if you're children, you will tell me what you think it could be. <laughs> it may be a giant leaf. I wonder what that could be. Let's see, we have something else in our box.
What do you think? A fence. It could be a fence. It's getting stronger, isn't it? It's getting taller and stronger. A wall. A wall. A house. A house. I wonder who lives inside. It's a sheepfold. How many sheep? One, two, three, four. Okay, what else do we need for our story? What do you think that could be? I wonder. Mm -hmm. A cloud. A cloud. It could be water. There's mm. more things before we can tell our story. Ooh, those are dark. No light at all. Sometimes when people sit over there, they think it's a face. <laughs> Rocks could be. What else do we need? I think we have all that we need to tell our story. Once there was a man who said such amazing things and did such wonderful things that people followed him everywhere. They wanted to know who he was. And one day when someone asked, he said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice, and they follow me. I know them by name, and they follow me to the fresh, cool, green grass. And when they are thirsty, I lead them to the cool, fresh, flowing water, and they follow me. They know my voice. And when we come to places of danger, I lead them through and they follow. <coughs> and at the end of the day, them back to the sheepfold. And I count my sheep. One, two, three, four. If a sheep is missing, I will go and seek that sheep. I will go to the green grass, to the cool, fresh flowing water. I will even go to the places of danger. And when I find the sheep, even if it is heavy, I will put it on my shoulder and I will bring it home. This is the ordinary shepherd. The ordinary shepherd does not know the sheep. He has not named them. The sheep do not know his voice, and he allows the sheep to wander. They do not follow him. He does not seek them out. And when the wolf comes, the ordinary shepherd runs away. 
the good shepherd places himself between the wolf and the sheep and would give his life for the sheep. these sheep feel in their sheepfold. I wonder what their names are. Have you ever been lost? How were you found? Does the Good Shepherd know your name? The Good Shepherd. The sheep fold. The places of danger. Cool, fresh water. Fresh green grass. When I finish a story, I give each child an envelope that has a little paper version of all of this. And they go and tell the story themselves, alone. Um, they enter that story. I have told this story many, 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 many times. And sometimes I overhear what the <coughs> children are saying. It has been a source of comfort for children who are dying. Children who have lost a sibling. Children whose parents are in prison. One little girl. Afterwards, we sometimes say, who are you in the story? And... Um, they always say, you know, I'm the sheep. Of course, once in a while, the boy will say, I'm a wolf. And I'm a man. Uh, but I'm one of the sheep. I'm the lost sheep. I ran away. Once and once only, the little girl said, I'm the good shepherd. Her mother's in prison. Her parents divorced. Her dad's not in her life. She has two younger sisters. They're not in foster care, but they are in a home that's not their family, some friends. She has an eight-year-old and a three-year-old sister. Mm -hmm. She must take care of her sister. She's got to keep them together. This story allowed her to tell a truth that she had not even put into words, nor had her mentor realized that explains so much of that child's behavior. Mm -hmm. I am. Mm -hmm. What 11-year-old thinks that? They spent the rest of the semester also talking about her good shepherd. She didn't say, oh, no, you're not the good shepherd. Mm -hmm. She allowed her to keep that. Mm -hmm. But she said, you also have a good shepherd who knows your name. And by the end of that semester, I have a, a drawing that I will show you. So slip back into your seats. We've got 10 minutes to do three more. <laughs> <laughs> So are these stories available? Yes, if you're interested in this, Google Godly Play. You can find all the materials. I made a bunch of this. But you I'll can say order that, say that Godly. 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 He, you know, people say, so what's ungodly play? Or, you know, or godly work. He just named it that. It works. I like it. Um, he has a lot of the basic, all the parables, the Old Testament stories, a lot of the New Testament stories, um, a lot of uh, color. He's Presbyterian or Episcopalian. He has a lot of the changes of the calendar stuff that you don't need. But all the stories are available through Godly Play. There's another website called Worship Woodworks. Best place, Worship Woodworks. You can order these characters. 
it's expensive. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you've done this because you were shaking your head over and, there. Well, I made my own. Yeah, yeah, you can. All out of felt. Yeah, you can but, do it. But um, I, I, somebody told it to me quickly like you, but I needed it. I found a YouTube, and I just studied yeah. her you bet. telling it. YouTube godly play stories of all sorts, and you can learn them that way. There's <laughs> available. You can buy books with scripts. If I have one recommendation, find a way to tell these stories this way and help children enter them. All children get entered. You entered this story. It became yours. And they do. They listen. They sing. Oh, absolutely. First time I'd ever seen I saw it with no children. I thought that would never work. Um, and I had an ADHD college guy who says, that's who me. That's me. He says, I would have sat for two minutes and I'd have been out of there. He was with me the first time we presented this with real children. First time I'd ever seen it with real children or done it with real children. He was one of the teachers. And the children got around this little thing and sat like this. And they got closer and closer in. <laughs> and I said, you can't touch the felt. And after they left, he looked at me and said, I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen it. They were with us the whole way. And there was a Nolan in that group. Nolan is the one who, you know, destroys everything. He was there, and he stayed with us. It was fabulous. OK. Helping children spiritually with grief and loss, um, losing a parent or a sibling to death, or facing chronic or terminal illness. Um, one out of every 20 children age 15 or younger will suffer the loss of one or both parents. I have no idea. <coughs> 1.5 million children are living in a single parent household because of the death of a parent. Seven in 10 t teachers currently have at least one student in their classes who's lost a parent, a guardian, a sibling, or a close friend in the past year. Over 13,000 children are diagnosed with cancer each year. 200,000 live with either type 1 or 2 diabetes. It's estimated 73,000 children die every year, and they, 83% of them, have a sibling. Mm -hmm. Who gets lost sometimes in that struggle? Just wanted to say it's everywhere. So here's Jerome Berriman. He says, this is the guy who wrote Godly Play. Children deal with, especially children in these settings, deal with existential limits of death, threat to freedom, aloneness, and need for meaning. He worked in a pediatric hospital. It's hard to pretend that children are not aware of their existential limits in a pediatric hospital. That was the genesis of Godly Play. He, this was in 1970, and he began developing. He spent 50 years. So he is just an amazing, still living, amazing man. Love his work. Okay, what are we going to do in these last seven minutes? Helping children. Reading books together. This is my number one go-to because it doesn't require anything. You don't have to have a labyrinth. You don't have to have a godly play. Any book at all will do. And when you read it, at the end, you say, who are you in this book? This is Nana upstairs, Nana downstairs. And this is uh, Olivia reading to Nala granddaughter. Um, and they had been meeting four weeks at this time, since their fourth meeting. Nala was a refugee, had told a little bit about her story. We were told not to ask about their stories, but they could tell us if they wished. I mean, if anything came up, they could tell us. Nala seemed to be doing fine. Nine Upstairs and Downstairs is about the grandmother and the great-grandmother who lived in the house with Tommy DePolo, the author. Mm -hmm. And grandma downstairs, upstairs died. She was uh, great-grandma and she died and then Grandma Downstairs died, and he, he chronicles that. So I read the story, and Olivia said, well, who are you in the story? What's your connection to the story? She said, well, my grandma lived, but they live in the Democratic Republic of Congo. They live in Congo. Um, but my sister died. Mm -hmm. My sister, my twin sister, we were on the road. We were running away, and a vehicle came down, or a big, big truck came down and hit our family, and it broke my leg. But it hit my sister, and it broke, broke her all over. And she didn't die right then. 
And I thought God was going to save her, and I prayed and prayed, and he didn't, and she died. I'm not supposed to tell anybody that. And then over the next several weeks, she talked about it over and over and over. We can't talk about this at home. She had been in the States a few years. They had two more children who didn't know about this. And they just didn't talk about it. So she had nobody to talk about this to. So she found a safe place. And this was a book about a grandma dying, but that's where she went with it. And another kid talked about her grandma who she misses who's still overseas. So the grandma didn't die, but she's away. So any book can elicit whatever that child's dealing with. You don't have to probe. They can just talk if they have something to say. So how do we help create ways for them to tell their stories? Not tell me about your divorce, tell me about your sister, but just let's write a letter to God. Well, this little girl wrote a letter to God and said, why didn't you hear my prayer? Why did you let my sister die? This is a different letter. This is just, it sounds like an ordinary letter. Dear God, I love you so much. You make us, you are nice and kind. You make this world and thank you. God, you made everything. I love you. You make us uh, be a good, uh, good at drawing and reading good and writing good. Well, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but she's fourth grade. Uh, she, interestingly enough, you know, a lot of these refugee kids didn't speak any English when they came and they were put into English-speaking schools. This is a better letter than you know. I mean, you think about it. Helping her learn what she needs to learn to do well in school. Big change for her. Her parents didn't speak any English. It was really traumatic. So these kids are dealing with a lot of losses. So a letter to God can let them express whatever they're feeling about anything. And it's a safe way. Uh, drawing God. This is the little girl drawing the Good Shepherd at the end of the time, the girl that mm. said she was the Good Shepherd. Later in the semester, she drew Jesus as her Good Shepherd. It wasn't prompted. Now do you understand that Jesus is your Good Shepherd? No, it wasn't that. It was just, we're going to draw God if you'd like to. And she drew this, and she said, that's Jesus. He's my Good Shepherd. So she got that. That was really a lovely piece. This was fascinating, drawing your family. This is Nala's picture. This is her later siblings and her, her siblings, uh, our other siblings that are older. And this is her parents and grandparents in Africa. You know who this is. This is her twin sister. She had a safe place to draw that reality and truth in her life. Children whose parents are in, uh, divorcing will draw them in separate houses. Children whose parents are in prison drew them behind bars. But um, very separate. Just a way to express the realities they're dealing with without us probing, and they could talk about it as they <coughs> wished. Create safe places for contemplation. I've done labyrinths for years. I finally made one because we always had to keep creating one. This is one that's already existing in Nashville at Vanderbilt. No, not Vanderbilt. Scarlet and Bennett. Bennett. Thank you. Um, and so we went there one year, and that was fabulous. Uh, but I made this one a couple years ago. It has been the most central piece for we do it after about seven weeks because it goes deep. Uh, the rules are you take your shoes off, although children don't always, and you follow this around and you, you're just thinking. You don't speak. The mentor and the mentee, the mentor leads in and you walk slowly around and you follow it quietly and slowly till you get to the middle. And in the middle, you sit and you listen. This is a central moment unbelievably wonderful things have happened in children there and they sit there until the mentor discerns it's time to go and then they uh, we blow the candle out and the child is allowed to lead out this is what did I decide to call her Madison um, Madison's mother is dying of uh, 
of pancreatic cancer. This isn't a private Christian school that we used this last fall. I was thinking, oh, it's just going to be ordinary kids with nothing going on. Well, that's never true. But in this case, there were traumatic things going on. We had adopted kids. We had a little African-American girl who was beginning to realize, I'm not like everybody else here. This is hard on me. We'll talk about her tomorrow. This little girl's mother is dying of cancer. We had lots of things going on. She had not talked about it all semester, and she exhibited for it. I can tell you, I went through that list of things. These are the things that we saw in her. Aggression, abandonment issues, attachment issues, isolation, anger all over the place. She refused to participate in half the things we did. I'm not doing that. Just that, her attitude the whole semester. Her poor little mentor, Autumn, was just beside herself. Um, and we got to the lab, I'm not doing that. What's that? That's a puzzle. And well, here are the rules. You need to take your shoes, walk off, follow, walk slowly, follow your, she took shoes off, took off, zoomed around, got in the middle, plopped down, says, now what's next? I mean, it was just oh, so annoying. Um, poor Autumn was doing the best she could. Got in the middle, said, okay, and what we do now is we light the candle. Would you like to light? Yeah. So she did. And we're going to sit here. What are we doing? We're just sitting here. What are we supposed to be doing? Well, we're just listening. So she sat. And Autumn knew she'd be out of there in a second. She sat. And she sat, and she sat. We were in the cafeteria, it was at a school. No one was there, it was, lights were down. I was standing, hiding in the back. And she kept her head down. And she, I didn't hear what she said, I couldn't hear it. But afterward, Autumn said, she looked up and said, my mama's gonna die. Mm -hmm. Who's gonna be my mama? Mm -hmm. So I sat there for a while. Would you like to blow the candle out? Okay. And then she said, can I lead? And so she led on the way out. Huge change from those, those weeks on. They came to my house a few weeks ago. I had my spring class over, invited Madison's family, because they lived down the street from us. And I invited Autumn. She wasn't in that class, but I invited her. Well, Madison had ignored her most of the semester. When she walked in my house and saw Autumn, she ran and threw her arms around her and sat on her lap the whole evening. Autumn was like, what? <laughs> it was amazing. Something incredible happened in that child over those 10 weeks. We couldn't see it, anything until this. Opening up space for children to share their realities, those feelings, those truths, without prompting, prompting, how are you doing? How's your mama? I mean, that's what we do all the time. But finding those open places to allow children to step into those realities and share them with you and with God. Or my grandchildren doing in labyrinth. The last thing hmm, that we need to do is foster hope. They need hope more than they need breath. Some of you in this room were with us a few years ago when we went through a devastating time. I, I remember this verse coming to me from my childhood. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The last thing we do every year with every class is we talk about hope. And we share this verse, and we hand out our hope rocks to every child and every student in my class gets a hope rock. I order these by the hundred, and I take them everywhere I go. Be surprised how many I give away on airplanes. Mm -hmm. um, so I brought a few today. If there is someone in your life who needs hope more than they need air to breathe, this rock is for you. 
So please come and get that. I would love to have left time for questions, but as my husband said, I don't suppose you'll leave time, will you? You <laughs> 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 give up. Um, but I'm glad to talk with you for a few minutes if you'd like. Thank you and blessings as you uh, nurture children that God sends to you. <laughs>